0: everyone. Good to see everyone here this morning on this uh, holiday weekend when our nation celebrates the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Um, We uh, celebrate our our own independence from our bondage to sin and the freedom that comes to us through faith in Christ. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are very thankful uh, that you have blessed us with um, a double freedom. Um, We thank you that we are uh, able to worship together, that uh, that uh, right is uh, ingrained uh, in the founding uh, documents of our nation, and we are wise not to take um, that for granted. More importantly, Father, and more Uh, pertinent to our relationship with you is the fact that you have set us free from our bondage to sin and the the slavery that it um, puts upon us because of the finished work of Christ. We ask, Lord God, that as we have sung songs, as we have come to uh, confess our sins before you, as we have celebrated uh, a, a declaration of our faith, that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts a a deeper and more fruitful love for you, that we would not be um, fruitless uh, or vain in our pursuit of godliness and holiness. That the end of that, Lord God, is that you may be glorified and that we may, as your Son encourages us to be, salt and light. That we would be your witnesses. That the, the purpose for which you have redeemed us is that we might Indeed, tell others about this wonderful God and Savior uh, who works in ways sometimes that are beyond our understanding, uh, whose wisdom is at times inscrutable, whose will is sometimes difficult to discern, uh, especially, Father, when we are perplexed or confused, when life throws circumstances in our way that challenge uh, our idea of who you are and the very reason for that is that we might then retreat into your word, that we might go into your presence, and uh, with the help of your spirit, Father, gain a clearer understanding and uh, a deeper faith, that we would trust you at times when we cannot uh, see your hand, when we cannot see clearly the path before us. We trust your word to be that light and lamp that will guide us uh, through uncertain and anxious times. And, for those moments, Father, when you do provide such striking clarity of a cloudless blue sky, of a path that is so firm and solid in front of us, we rejoice in that and we give you thanks that there is the ability that you have given to us through the help of your Spirit to know for certain how we ought to think, how we ought to behave, what we ought to do. And so we give you thanks, O Lord God, that you were with us both in times of perplexity but also, Lord God, in times of great clarity. We pray, Lord, for uh, your clarity now, the work of your Spirit to be um, present among us, that you would explain to us from your word more clearly how we can worship you and, and even how through times of refinement your will is being perfected in us and you are molding us more and more into the image and likeness of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you were to uh, go to Boston, Massachusetts, and walk along the Charles River Esplanade, you will uh, come across a very unique statue of a man named Arthur Fiedler. Arthur Fiedler was a longtime conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra in Boston. And uh, we put the picture up there Link. So the, the, the sculpture itself, go back to the first one, is made of 83 separate aluminum plates. And if you go to the next one, um, it, the next slide. There we are. That's what they look like close up. But the unique feature about this sculpture, if you go to the next slide, is that the further away from the sculpture you move, the clearer it becomes, and I think there's one more. There you go. So, and uh, because it's Boston, sometimes in the baseball season, they'll put a Red Sox cap on him. (laughs) Hockey season, they'll put a hockey helmet on him. Uh, But there's Arthur Fiedler. This unique statue, so you get a better picture even from afar. This statue uh, combines um, this dynamism of uh, what's called distance and knowing and it plays upon the, the mystery of perception. In other words, the, the further you move back from the sculpture, and it was designed intentionally this way, the further you are from it, the clearer it is. The closer you get, the the, less, uh, the more abstract it becomes. And, I use this illustration because I think that's an appropriate way of understanding Zechariah, that there are times when we can become so involved in the text and so confused by uh, the language and the imagery that it's sort of like seeing it very, very close, and we need to sort of step back, give the text some distance that we might know more clearly what it is that is being said, not through the mystery of perception but through uh, faith and trust in the character and purposes of God. Sometimes we have to step back, if you will, from the scripture in order to allow the word to speak uh, and reveal um, itself more clearly to us. And this is especially true for the text that we're going to look at once again here in Zechariah 13. We looked at the first six verses of Zechariah 13 last week, today we're going to wrap up the chapter, and we'll look at verses 7 to 9, but I'm going to read the whole thing uh, in context. So here again is Zechariah 13, and the prophet is speaking. He says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I also will remove from the land the prophets in the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet, I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, uh, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now, Zechariah 13, in following Zechariah 12, begins with this theme this message that God will cleanse the house of David, he'll cleanse the inhabitants of Jerusalem from sin and uncleanness, he will cut off the names of the idols uh, so that they'll no longer be remembered, he will put an end uh, to the false prophets and false teaching that they promulgate, Uh, and all signs at this point, when when we get to the end of verse 6 in uh, Zechariah 13, all signs seem to point to God preparing the land and the people for some great spiritual awakening, that finally, having returned the exiles to their homeland, having cleared, if you will, their hearts of the debris of sin and uncleanness, now he's going to send this great spirit of revival. And then suddenly we come to verses 7 through 9. And all the hope uh, that was ignited by what was said in Zechariah 12, all of the, uh, the promise of revival, it seems to be hinted at very strongly in the first half of Zechariah 13. They appear to have be, uh, just evaporate in a cloud of confusion and, and despair. However, that's only if we are so close to the text as we would be to that sculpture of Arthur Fiedler. That's one way of seeing it. But if we step back, and apply the principle of distance and knowing by stepping back, if you will, from the text, the character and purposes of God here become more and more clear, as does the the big idea, which is sometimes God does the unexpected in order to bring us back into relationship with him. That he does what we do not expect so that he can restore that which we have lost, He does what we we don't expect so that he can bring us back into relationship with him. And he does three unexpected things in these verses, does God. He strikes down his shepherd. He scatters the sheep, two-thirds of which we're told will perish while one-third is left alive. And then the third that's left alive, he says, he will refine and he will test until they call upon his name. So... God does the unexpected in order to bring us back into relationship with him. He does three unexpected things. He strikes down his shepherd. He scatters the sheep. Two-thirds are cut off and perish. One-third remains. They're refined and tested. So they'll come out like gold and will call upon his name. And then uh, he, uh, he does this to, in a sense, restore our relationship with him. So let's look at how this breaks down. So verse 7 we're told that the shepherd is struck down. Um, the Lord speaks here and says, "Awake, O sword, against my shepherd." Uh, the sword obviously symbolizes some form of judgment. If you go back to the first book of the Bible, go back to Genesis, Genesis three, after uh, God casts out from the Garden of Eden Adam and Eve, we're told that He placed uh, there are two cherubim that were placed on guard. And then there was a flaming sword that guarded the way to the tree of life. So anyone who wanted to access the tree of life had to go undergo that sword of judgment. Jeremiah 50 records the fact that when the prophet speaks, he talks about a sword against the various nations that were uh, plundering uh, Israel. So the sword here represents judgment. The fact that God speaks to it tells us that somehow the sword represents either a person or some kind of governing authority. And that's important, that's interesting to know, but the the truly important thing uh, in this text is not so much the identity of the uh, the sword, but who is the shepherd? And what did the shepherd do such that it required God to strike him down with the sword? So it might be important to know who the sword is, but the really important questions are, who's the shepherd? And what did he do such that God would strike him down? And in context, most uh, historians will say, well, in the immediate sense, the the shepherd that's talked about here would be our old friend Zerubbabel, who is the the governor, the the leader of the uh, exiles that have returned. But again, you place the principle of distance and knowing. You come to the New Testament, you fast forward about 500 years, And you come specifically to the Gospels of Mark and Matthew. We read part of this text already. And I say that in order. I say Mark and Matthew because Mark is believed to be the first Gospel. You find these words written by Mark in Mark 14. We read a version of this already in Matthew 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then Matthew essentially says the the same thing uh, in Matthew 26, 30 to 32. You'll all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So here's our answer. In a larger sense, in a grander sense of the text, the answer to the question, who is the shepherd? The shepherd is Jesus Christ. This, is, this comports well with Jesus' own self-identification. Remember, in uh, the Gospel of John, John 10, verse 11, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd, he says, knows his sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. So who is the shepherd? The shepherd is Jesus. The second question then becomes important. What did the shepherd do to deserve to be struck down, and why did God strike him down? Well, we know that the end of Zechariah 11, that very dark and darkening chapter, at the end of Zechariah 11, God pronounces a curse upon what he calls my worthless shepherd, who doesn't do the the job that's assigned to him. Um, That can't be Jesus, because Jesus is the good shepherd. He does exactly what is required of him. Jesus did not desert his flock, but he laid down his life for his flock. So God could not have struck Jesus down for dereliction of duty, for being a worthless shepherd. There must be another reason, then, why God did that. And one place to find that reason, again, Scripture interpreting Scripture, allowing uh, the word to speak for itself in its own defense, and its own explanation, we go to the the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, a very famous passage, where the prophet, this is written 700 years before Jesus appears on the scene, the prophet says, speaking of the, the servant of God, which we then will know is Jesus Christ, he says, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed we All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So now we have the answer to our second question. Why did God strike the shepherd? Not for anything wrong that the shepherd did. The shepherd is struck down because of the misdeeds, the sin, the disobedience, the rebellion of the sheep. So the sheep sin, but it's the shepherd who pays the price. And according to what Isaiah says here, and according to the New Testament as well, uh, the shepherd is struck down as our substitute. This really is the heart of the gospel, is it not? Jesus dying in our place for our sins, for our salvation... His death is the atoning sacrifice for sins. His death brings us peace with God instead of a never-ending hostility. His death brings us forgiveness instead of a future condemnation. His death brings us everlasting life instead of an everlasting life with God instead of an everlasting punishment apart from God. You have, in this sense, to the the people of Zechariah's day, a clear message that no matter what human leader rises to power, no matter what human leader they invest their hope and dream in, that human leader is not going to be their savior because they are human and they are sinful and they are fallible. We have that same lesson today in, in light of the most recent Supreme Court ruling, you have seen and heard a lot of people talking about, we need this kind of leader, we need this kind of law, we need this kind of rule. And it goes back and forth, because there is no human leader, there is no human law that is going to lead us to utopia. If it were, then communism would never have failed. So we have this sense in which We have to look beyond the leaders that God gives us on a human level to one who is ultimately not of this earth, but is still from the dust of this earth, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he dies in our place because we cannot reform ourselves, we cannot save ourselves, we cannot do good in and of ourselves. There has to be this substitute who stands in our place and that is this shepherd he does stand in our place before God he suffers the punishment that is due us and now he stands before God in the eternal presence of the almighty as our eternal representative a continual and eternal reminder to God the father and God the spirit that he has paid the full and awful penalty for our sin Remember, our first representative, our federal head, if you will, is Adam. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, was a covenant-breaking rebel. Jesus comes as the second Adam, the God-man. He is the opposite of the first Adam. He's the covenant-keeping, perfectly obedient son of God. And it's his perfect obedience is necessary because we needed one who could fill the law perfectly, keep it, He needed to be God because only God could endure the wrath of God on our behalf. He carries our sins to the cross where he suffers the wrath of God in our place. He dies for the sin of the sheep. So there's this hope that Israel has in a temporal sense that God will give us leaders who will govern and lead us. Because we need that. But we are not to invest an eternal everlasting hope in them. That's why Paul says in Timothy, pray for your leaders. Pray for those in political authority. Because they are fallible, weak human beings just as we. And they need to be upheld by prayer. But we have in Christ one who prays for us. One who even in the garden on the night that he's betrayed, facing the death that he will face on the cross... He is praying for us. You go to John 17 and read that high priestly prayer. And Jesus' concern is not about himself, ultimately, but it's for the sheep that he will leave behind. It is for those of us that he is most concerned because he knows that he is going to be struck down. And he knows how much we invest, how much passion we invest in our leaders. We idolize some of them, we immortalize others. So you have a statue of Arthur Fiedler and who's a symphony conductor compared to the timeline of history. And yet important people we memorialize. And when they're gone, there's a gap, there's a hole that left. And Jesus knows that. This is why he also promised us to send us the Holy Spirit. So that in his physical absence, he is spiritually present with us through his spirit. And so the, the shepherd is struck down as our substitute, That we might have in him one who is thoroughly, completely reliable, dependable, trustworthy. A savior in whom we can place all of our hope, our dreams, and our passions. One who will not disappoint us. One who is always going to be perfect and one who is always ready to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he lives to make intercession. He lives to pray for those whom God draws to himself and who approach that throne of grace. So you have this this promise that is made here in Zechariah that God will always provide leadership for his people, but the ultimate leadership is the one who is eternal, who is the Son of God. And what happens when this shepherd is struck down in verse 8, we're told, is that the sheep are scattered. You go back to what uh, is said in Matthew's gospel. Jesus says there, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, someone might say, and, and rightfully so, Jesus is simply quoting Zechariah thirteen seven here because he wants to illustrate a simple principle. That when a leader is struck down, their removal has an adverse effect. It leaves a vacuum for the followers. Some of us are old enough to remember I was just a little uh, guy when uh, John F. Kennedy, President of the United States, was assassinated. Several years later, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was assassinated the same year in 1968. Those were pivotal figures within certain movements. And when they were struck down, The nation and those who followed them were kind of lost as to how to find their way, and that vacuum created all sorts of chaos. Jesus knows that. But I don't think that's the only reason why Jesus says this. He says this in order to predict a couple of things. He's predicting, number one, how their faith will be refined and how their hearts will be tested. He knows that in his absence, he even tells this to to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded this night to sift you like wheat. And then he issues a promise. But when you have returned, restore your brothers. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan sifts. Jesus prays. Satan sifts in order to destroy and to crush. Jesus prays that we might be refined and tested and, made and come out as pure gold through the things that we suffer, through the trials that we go through, however light and momentary they are, or how difficult and hard and dark they are. Some of us have never had truly difficult trials. Praise God for that. Others of us have walked through valleys of darkness where it has seemed very difficult to find the path in front of us. You go to the word of God and it's dry like a desert. Prayers don't seem to be effectual. And yet we understand at that moment Christ is praying for us. The spirit is interceding for us as well. So there are are these moments when it seems or feels like we are leaderless, but we are not. Because we have a great high priest who is... Praying for us. Jesus is warning his disciples, these things are going to come upon you. This is why he spends so much time on the night that he is betrayed, preparing them for his eventual death. He even says at one point, I have a whole lot of more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. He saves those things until after his resurrection. But he wants them to know that he has prayed for them, that he prays for us even as we go through things that are difficult and trying What he says in in, uh, Matthew 26 really is meant to inject hope into the heart of the apostles. Because immediately after he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, did you catch what Jesus says after that? So I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Then he says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He's saying two things there. He's predicting his own resurrection and he's offering and he will offer to the disciples a second chance as he offers to all of his disciples who fall away either for cowardice or for fear or for being attracted by the materialism of this world. We sometimes go out that way like the hymn we sang prone to wander Lord I feel it and then he brings us back. It's almost as if he lets us out there for a moment, lets us out of the pasture, lets us out of the sheepfold, so we can sort of wet our, our appetite, dip our toe in, in that kind of experience, and then realize it's empty. It's like cotton candy. It evaporates in a moment. The The joy and the peace and even the prosperity or even the health that it offers is light and momentary. It's ineffectual. It's like, it's, Tissue paper trying to hold water, it just dissolves. And at that moment, when everything is dissolved, that Jesus is standing there saying, Here I am. I have gone before you. Matter of fact, I was even with you while you were out there on your own trying to figure out what was more worth your time than I. So, so by saying, I'll go before you to Galilee, he's giving these apostles a second chance. They may desert him, but he will not desert them. Remember, he's the good shepherd. He knows his own, and his own know him. And those whom Jesus knows, he will never, no, never, no, never forsake. He will leave the 99, and he will go in search of the one that is lost. Because that's why he came, right? To seek and to save those who were lost. Even those of his own flock who may wander and stray for a while, he will bring them back. He will, by his grace, by his mercy, by his eternal intercession, pray. That's why when we get to the part about refining, it becomes so important. Because sometimes we have to have those idols burned out of us through the fire of trial and refinement. The sheep may fall away, but the shepherd will not. He will always gather into his fold those who are his. This is a wonderful promise because we know that the people of Zechariah's time did not maintain their faithfulness. So here God builds in this understanding that we are not always going to be faithful. We are not always going to lean on him as we should. And yet he is always there. Yet he is always drawing us, drawing us, drawing us, pulling us more and more near to himself. John Calvin uh, captures uh, the, the prophetic power of Jesus' words. But when I am raised up, I will go before you Galilee. He says here, Christ is not simply saying he will rise again, but declares he will be their leader. And we'll take them up again as companions. I think some of us sometimes when we have gone our way, when we've let our hair get a little long, when we've allowed our minds to wander and our bodies to do things that we would not otherwise want them to do under the influence of his Holy Spirit, we feel, oh, I've, I've overstepped, I've gone too far, I've done that thing that God will never forgive. And here Jesus says, no, no. You can't get any further from him than what Peter does on the night that he's betrayed and deny him, not once, not twice, but three times. And at the end of John's Gospel, what does Jesus do? He restores Peter by asking him, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me? And by the third time, Peter is, is, a, is a broken and changed man He says, Lord, you... You know that I love you. And sometimes I think Jesus brings that to the moment when we have in a sense, lost our minds and have chased after the, the temporary and ephemeral things of this world. And Jesus corners us as he does Peter. Nicely, gently. Sometimes not so gently. But he asks, do you love me? More than these? More than the 401k? More than the nice house? More than the idealized vision of what you had for your life? More than your spouse? More than your future spouse if you're single? More than your children? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your self image? Do you love me more than your integrity? And they ask those questions not to condemn, not to convict, but so that all of those things will be put in their proper perspective. Because once we learn that He is the thing to love, He is the one to love above all else, all those other things fall in line in order of priority. If he's the topmost. If He's the uttermost thing that we love, everything else falls into line. Remember when. Jesus was struck down, the apostles turned coward and ran, but then came Pentecost, and the Spirit filled them, and they became lambs that roared. And they proclaimed to everyone, not only is he risen, but he is active in the world through the preaching of his word, and through the proclamation of his people. But we still have to deal with a very hard word in this text, How do we make sense of that line, two-thirds will be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive? Most scholars will will say, and I I think rightly so, that this prophecy of Zechariah was fulfilled as a result of the rejection of Jesus by his own people. John mentions this in John chapter 1, right? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as did... Right, So those who did not receive it would fall into the two-thirds category. Those who did would fall into the one-third. And it would, it would seem, too, that historically Rome uh, uh, sacks Jerusalem in 70 AD. We don't know how many numbers of people two-thirds refers to, but certainly the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in 70 AD is a pivotal moment in fulfilling this prophecy of, of Zechariah. And so if this is what verse 8 means, the point is while two-thirds will be cut off and perish for rejecting the Messiah there in Israel, God also promises to preserve for himself a remnant, a third. Similar numbers are used in Ezekiel's prophecy as well. You also remember when Elijah has his confrontation with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, and he's despairing. He's had this great victory. The prophets of Baal have been destroyed. And he runs for his life. And he's in a cave. And he's just thinking, I'm it. I'm the only one left. I'm the only faithful one in all of Israel. And he just has a, a bit of a, a pity party for himself, which is what we all can do at times, if we're honest. right? We look at ourselves. We look at the world around us. So, oh, boy, oh, boy. And what does God tell him? Oh, Elijah, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's a remnant. We're part of that remnant. God promises that there will be a remnant who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, that He will be their leader, He will be our shepherd, that He will lead us to, to good pasture. This remnant of Jews in Israel is expanded in the New Testament to include both Jew and Gentile. Remember in, in John's Gospel, again, this 10th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus is talking about Himself as a good shepherd. He talks there about sheep, other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning other sheep that are not of the the nation of Israel. Well, those are the Gentiles. That's you and I who were not raised in a a Jewish home or have a Jewish background. But we are outside, if you will, of the covenants of Israel. But we are brought into that covenant through the work of Christ. As a matter of fact, in in Galatians 6.16, when Paul is writing to a Gentile church, that believes in Jesus, he refers to the church as the Israel of God, and then again in, in romans eleven twenty five and twenty six Paul says that although a partial hardening has come upon Israel, there is a time coming when we can expect large numbers of Jewish converts to Christianity, and some believe, and I think correctly so, that this is already happening it has been ongoing throughout the life of the church the church understands our mission is to preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile. Paul even says that at the beginning of Romans 1, I am under obligation to preach the gospel to those in Israel and those outside because all need to come under the saving umbrella of God's covenant of grace that is available through faith in Christ. One thing we do know is that God will always preserve a remnant of his people. We enjoy marvelous freedoms in our country to worship and to gather, and we can do so in public. We could, we, not just a biblical right; it's a constitutional right. We have freedom of. So we go out into a public place and we can worship. Now, people may get upset. They may say things at us. They may even throw things at us. But no authority is going to come and put us in jail. There are places in this world that, if you do that in public, You are put in jail or worse, but there's still a remnant in those places. There's still maybe even a stronger and more vital and vibrant faith in those places. So God will never leave himself without a witness. The light may be dimming, if you will. The light of the gospel may be dimming in the West, but it is shining brightly in what's called the two-thirds world. The southern hemisphere of our globe is exploding with Christians and Christianity, particularly the continent of Africa. We have friends who are missionaries in Latin America, and they're, they're just amazed at how God is growing. I have a, another friend who uh, was part of a mission organization and would make visits uh, periodically to Lebanon. And uh, he visited one church um, where when he first visited, the church had maybe 14 or 15 people. Then he went back a couple of years later, and that same church was having multiple services because it had grown to the tens of thousands in a Muslim country. So God is always going to have a remnant. He's always going to build his church. He's always going to have people who will worship him. So the sheep may be scattered, but they are scattered for the purpose that God would cull out of that scattering a third, a faithful remnant to himself. And then, and then lastly, this remnant then that he gathers, what does he do? <laughs> Again, he does the unexpected thing. It's wonderful that he gathers this remnant. It's wonderful that he gathers these sheep, this people, we, who trust in his son. But then he says, I'm going to refine them like silver. I'm going to test them like gold. He's going to put us in a crucible. Much in the same way that Peter was, was sifted, we understand that Christ will refine us and he will purify our faith through adversity, through trial, through testing. Um, it's a July 4th weekend, and so it's only appropriate that I read something patriotic, which really does speak to this text. Most historians, at least American historians, will tell you that the winter of 1776 was a defining moment in the Revolutionary War. The colonial army was encamped at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Uh, The cold that year, the winter was bitter and brutal. The troops had no food. They were poorly clothed. Many of them, uh, their enlistments were coming due. So they were were getting ready to leave the army and go back to their farms because many of them were from New England. So morale was very low. As a matter of fact, there were many in the nation who believed that it was better just to surrender because defeat was imminent. And so as as both the morale of the army and of the the, the public were at its lowest point, something had to be done and something was. And And that someone was Thomas Paine. He wrote a very famous pamphlet called The American Crisis, which begins with this very famous opening paragraph. I remember having to memorize this as a kid in public school. And it begins with these famous words. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us. That the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Those are precious words even for today. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. How valuable are we to God? We are so valuable that he bought us with the price of his one and only son. That is how highly he esteems us. That is how highly he prizes our fellowship with us. That is how highly he prizes our love. That he would send his son to die for us. So when God puts us through the process of testing and refining, it is so that our love for him would be as passionate, as pure, as undefiled as is his love for us shown through his son. Heaven indeed knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom, substitute freedom with salvation. It would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as salvation should not be highly rated. I think one of the reasons why God allows us to be tested is that we would begin to, esteem not only our Savior, but the salvation that he brings to us. Because the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot, they run away at the first sign of trouble. But the soldier who stands, the disciple who stands his or her ground, endures adversity, puts up with light and momentary affliction, as Paul says. They are the ones who are most deserving of honor, respect, and gratitude. They are the ones who will stand before our Savior on judgment day and receive those words that anyone who follows Christ longs to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The winter soldier, the winter disciple, does not run away because they truly believe that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. So in a time of testing, the winner disciple does not shrink from service to our Savior. Does not shrink from his obedience to our, our Lord. God puts us in the crucible. He intends, he intends to prove our worthiness and strengthen our weakness. There was one of the more fundamental lessons I learned. Remember last week I shared about my experience in Ohio one of the more fundamental experiences, one of the more fundamental lessons I learned about just trial in general is that God is not testing me to fail me. He is testing me that I will succeed. We tend to think that God tests us because he wants us to fail. But you think about when we're in school, why do we take exams? Why are they necessary? They're necessary to show what we know and what we don't know. And testing and refining is exactly the same. It tests what we know. God is faithful. Christ is praying for me. He can sympathize with me in every weakness and temptation because he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In every temptation, God leaves a way of escape. And no temptation has come upon me such as common to humanity. These are the things I know. What I don't know necessarily is the way out of it. But even that I know because if I trust and put my whole heart in following him and obeying him, I can weather the trial. I can walk through that valley of darkness. Trials and testing allow us also, I would get extremely, Jill can verify this, I probably still do. It's one of the things the Lord has continued to work on me. When you make a mistake, how do you respond do you call yourself names? Do you just think you're the worst person ever? And you, you like Peter, you call down curses. I'm going to be so stupid. You just, and I remember one time a friend of mine pulled me aside and said, you know, you wouldn't be so angry with yourself if, if you did not have such a high opinion of yourself. We have a high opinion of ourselves. And trials and testing are meant to lower our opinion of ourselves that God may instill in us a right view of who we are, to see ourselves in Him. And to say, you know what, you're, you're human, you're gonna make mistakes, so deal with it by trusting in me, trusting in my grace, my mercy, and forgiveness. We make a mistake, God doesn't say, that's it, you're done, you're out. Right? It's not like in baseball, three strikes, sit in the bench. Right? Strike out too many times, you're off the bench, you're off the team. You may strike out a lot. God says, we're going to work on that stance. We're going to work on your timing. We're going to work on your batter's eye. We're going to work on getting you more in tune with what's going on. Don't give up. I haven't given up on you. I'm not going to walk away. You may be a, a rebellious and truculent sheep, but I am a loving and patient Savior, and I will work with you because you're mine, and I love you. And I esteem you so highly, I gave my blood for you. I've breathed my spirit into you. I've put my spirit into you. Don't walk away. Let's walk together. Let's, you have my yoke. It's easy. My burden is gentle. I'm lowly of heart. Follow me. This is why he refines us that we might see him more clearly. Because sometimes when you're in the crucible of trial, it's like looking at that statue of Arthur Fiedler. You're like this close to it, and you can't see anything. And finally, you've had to step back. Oh, I see what he's doing. Mentor of mine used to have a, a formula for how God brings about change. It's not infallible, but it does help. So there's pain... Plus time plus insight equals change. Pain plus time plus insight equals change. Understand too that Jesus is the ultimate winter soldier, that he endured the crucible of crucifixion because only he could defeat sin, only he could defeat hell itself. He endured the punishment that was rightly due ourselves. He went under the sword. You remember Genesis 3.24? I alluded to it earlier. There's a flaming sword in front of the tree of life. The only way to get access to that tree of life is to go under the sword. Christ entered into that punishment. He went under the sword that we would have access to that tree freely, forever. God does the unexpected in order to restore us into relationship with him. He strikes down his son. He strikes down his son because we have sinned. Because we have sinned, his son has made it possible for us to have access to the Father, and that access allows him by his grace to refine us, that we might more and more reflect the image and likeness of his son.